Good evening, ladies. It's our last week. <sighs> last week, final week of Exodus part one. God's people redeemed. But there's a part two. Yeah, there's part two. So we will meet again next semester for part two. Well, my name is Suzanne Walker, and I have the joy of starting us off tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, you are worthy. There is no one like you. And we want to know you rightly. Would you speak to our hearts tonight? Through your word and through your spirit, teach us to adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I teach a pre-kindergarten class a couple days a week. And a lot of times my little students will come in and they barely know their name. They sure don't know how to write it. And the letters are all mixed up, right? So sometimes to help them, I will put their name to song. Each letter gets put in and it makes a nice little tune and it makes it easy for them to remember, right? And as they walk out of my classroom, having learned their name, I see a similarity with our text tonight. As the people walk out of the Red Sea, they have learned their name and it's put to song. It's beautiful. Their name, God's people, redeemed. You see, the first biblical mention of the word redeemed was found in Exodus chapter 6. Redemption was seen by God's actions, God's movements, what he was going to do for his people to redeem them. In our text tonight, we hear of the first biblical mention of the word salvation as well. You see, a people redeemed, they have seen God rightly by way of his attributes put on display in their very own personal lives. A people redeemed have witnessed firsthand the Redeemer. They have witnessed firsthand him do what the Redeemer does, bring forth salvation. This firsthand, this eyewitness account, this testimony crescendos tonight into this beautiful chorus that we hold in our hands and that he writes on our hearts. And right here in this text, we see another first. We see the first penned song of Scripture in Exodus 15. You see, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt and culminating at the Red Sea is considered by many to be the most important event in the story of Scripture until we meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's such a significant story that it's told twice, right? Last week, we were in chapter 14, and that was in a, in a prose format. It gave this chronological, detailed listing of the day's events. And then now, in chapter 15, we see it as poetry. We see it as poetry. The poetry account which we have before us, this song of praise, 
um, it causes us to look back on what the Lord did then. And it calls for us to look forward to the future implications of what he will do. Chapter 14 tells the story that is our story too. Chapter 15 sings a song that is our song too. Looking back, chapter 14 closed with a summary of what the Lord had done for the people at the Red Sea. And verse 30 reads, That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God saved them. God moved on behalf of his people And then in verse 31 of chapter 14, we began to see how God's people would respond to God's actions, to God's movement. For when the Lord moves, his people must respond. We must take notice and respond. Israel's response to the Lord, we read of in verse 31. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. You see, that verse tells us two ways that they responded. They feared the Lord and they believed in God. The Lord wants to be known rightly. Not just how you want to know him or how you think he should be. He wants to be known rightly. And when the Israelites saw the Lord move on their behalf, they gleaned a right knowledge of his power. They gleaned a right understanding of his authority over everything. They responded with a right fear. He is the one in charge. We're going to follow him. We're going to follow him. And worship is produced when the mind is rightly understanding God and the heart is rightly valuing him. I'll say it again. Worship is produced when the mind is rightly understanding God and the heart is rightly valuing him. It's both. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Right fear. See, God's actions caused the people of Israel to displace the fear of Pharaoh and in place of it have a right fear of God. They believed him. And this belief was not just a far away idea of something I think is out there. This was an active belief. It's a verb here in this text. They believed in him. It's an action word. It wasn't something they just had. It was something they did. And we saw them, right? We saw them experience the Lord as they put foot down after foot down and they walked in obedience through the Red Sea. We saw them experience God. We saw them through the waters. We saw them even through the plagues. They were an eyewitness of what the Lord 
was doing. They had an eyewitness account. And see, that's what makes it personal. God's action stirred up within them a right fear of who he was, and it stirred up within them an active belief. This eyewitness account of what the Lord had done for them gave them a testimony. It strengthened what they knew here in their mind and connected it to what they knew in their heart. Knowing God personally happens in intimacy and abiding with him and going through the storm with him. An act of belief is stirred up by what God is doing. Do you want to experience God? Do you want to? You look for him in his word. You look for his attributes in his word. You look for his actions in his word. And then you actively believe and obey in obedience and you obey his word. That is our experience with our Lord. So the Israelites responded to the Lord by rightly fearing him and actively believing him. And now in chapter 15, we're going to see that worship is an overflow of this combination of of rightly fearing him and actively believing in him. And it just crescendos into this beautiful chorus. Let's read verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. We see the people of God respond to the Lord through a song of praise. We hear their right fear being expressed by what they know God has done. He's thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. He's gotten rid of their their fear. We hear their belief as they rejoice in the Lord their God. And even though they are singing together, we can note something here. The Lord has not only become their God as a whole nation, he has also become their God as a single person in the nation. So it's not just a whole, but individual people. The people redeemed give a personal response to their very personal God. And God wants to be known rightly and personally. Look at the pronouns used. I will sing, I will praise, I will exult. He's my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. These personal pronouns demonstrate for us how each individual Israelite was affected by God, by his attributes and by his actions. God had certainly moved on behalf of all of Israel, but he had also acted on behalf of each individual Israelite so that they could say, you're my God, my strength, my song. God wants to be known rightly, and he wants to be known personally by the Israelites then, by you and I right now.
like the Israelites, you and I also have an opportunity to know him rightly and personally through the story of Exodus because the Exodus is our story. We're going to respond right now personally to our very personal God with God does God does want to be known rightly. And the actions of God point us toward the attributes of God. They teach us about who God is. So let's pick up reading Israel's song in verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand has shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The currents stood firm like a dam. The, de the watery depths congealed at, in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew out your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Does your understanding of God align with what we see in this section of scripture? Is your God a warrior? Does he shatter his enemies, overthrow his adversaries, unleash his burning wrath? There are many things that are true about God. He is loving and kind and patient and forgiving. But he's not more of those things than he is of these things. And if we neglect certain aspects of God in favor of other ones that we prefer, well, we're at risk of developing an, a lopsided view of him a theology that's not quite right. Because God is a warrior, and it says it in other parts of Scripture too. As we've studied thus far, we have seen that God being a warrior is actually a very good thing. In a fallen world that is hostile to God and his ways, God must be a warrior, otherwise evil prevails. A good God must oppose evil, not just be theoretically opposed to evil, but actually and actively oppose evil. Look at the evil of the enemy, verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, 
I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. Look at the confidence with which the enemy plots evil. And then notice the ease with which the Lord responds. He simply blew out his breath. He spoke. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. God is a warrior, saves his people from evil. But the story's barely getting started, ladies. As the Israelites travel towards the promised land, they're going to get attacked. They're going to have to fight. And when they enter the promised land, in order to be where God wants them to dwell, they're also going to have to fight. It was important for them to understand the Lord as a warrior and to understand that there was going to be a fight. They needed to see that the Lord was the one who would lead them into the battle, fight for them during the battle, keep them as they battle. And just like we've seen time and time again as we've studied this first section of Exodus, these physical things teach us spiritual truths. Let me ask you, do you see yourself in a spiritual battle? Because Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we are in a very real spiritual battle with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Do you see God as the one that is leading you into your spiritual battles, fighting for you during your battles, keeping you as you battle. God is a warrior. And here we also see what happens to those that perpetually and obstinately refuse to submit to the Lord. This account in Exodus points us to what will happen at the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns in his glory. God will establish his good reign. He will put away evil for good. God's eventual destruction and his anger against evil, they're not in opposition to his majesty. No, actually they're an inherent aspect to it. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. The Israelites could count on that truth. And ladies, we too can count on that truth. Let's praise God, the one who fights for us and the one that saves. Hallelujah, ladies. The God is a victorious God. He's an awesome God, and he's absolutely unique. There is no one like our God. He is incomparable. So let's pick up reading in verse 13. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. And when the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Verse 13, with your faithful love, you, have, you will lead the people you have redeemed. And as Suzanne has already said, this story of this redemption, the act of redemption itself, when something is being redeemed, there is the transfer of ownership. So what we see here is we see Israel belonging to Egypt, and then by the merciful act of God, it now belongs to God. And so there is a change of this ownership. It's like a title. And you know, sometimes we believe we as people, we don't really, nobody owns us, right? We're kind of our own bosses. But this is the lie. This is the lie. We too have a title on our soul, and we need to know who it belongs to. And we need to know that the price has been paid to bought us out, and we too are being redeemed. And so this is, was very important for Israel because later in Deuteronomy 15, 15, this is what it says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So the events at the Red Sea had an impact on the people and the nations that Israelites knew they would have to encounter as they proceeded to conquer the Promised Land. And all of these people and nations are forced to consider what Israel's deliverance at the sea might mean for them if they were to oppose Israel and sure enough, these events proved to be true as we continue reading the story. So the story of Exodus proclaims that true freedom is found in willing submission to God. So it is one of the most devastating um, and deeply rooted lies in our culture that freedom from is enough. That freedom from the laws, freedom from limits, freedom from traditions and obligations, that it is enough. Oh, now we're set free, we're free from. But true freedom always requires a freedom for. We're creatures with a purpose, with a built-in end. True freedom is only found in willing submission to God. And so God didn't set Israel free from slavery to Pharaoh that they would later invent their own identity or that they will later have a different purpose outside of the purpose of now being his people and serving him and worshiping him. So the exodus was a transfer of ownership from one master to another. And now listen what it says in Romans 6, 
verse 16. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And in, only in total service to God can we find perfect freedom. So I want this really to sink in um, with us tonight because it is a glorious truth to be redeemed from the power of sin, to be redeemed from our past. But we need to believe and understand and know what we have been redeemed for. As Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson put in their excellent new book, Echoes of Exodus. It says, those who serve pharaohs become beasts and perish. Those who serve the Lord become priests and flourish. Exposing the empty promises of freedom from and exalting in the freedom for that we find in serving God alone is one of the most urgent, crucial, and life-giving tasks facing the church today. So preach through the Exodus. Show your people that you've been rescued from the slavery to sin, and you have been rescued to worship. Reference, if you want to write it down, we're rescued to worship Exodus 14.1 through Exodus 15.21. Rescued to trust. We're living continuous life of trusting that is 1522 through 1827. Holiness, justice, and we are safe to dwell with God. So God has graciously come at various times and in various ways to place where we live. But it has always been God's plan that his people would come to the place where he lives preparing the dwelling place that we just read. And so the story of Israel, it mirrors that. God called them out of the place where they were living, bound them to himself in a covenant, and then led them to his holy dwelling. The same thing is true of us in Christ today. God calls those who believe in him out of where we used to, to um, be born or where we're living, and he, is, he binds us to himself in a new covenant, and then he is leading us to his holy dwelling. It is interesting how we observe also the tense of the verbs in this passage, right? We go from the future to as if it is the um, perfect tense, right? And so this is sometimes called the prophetic perfect tense, right? Because this is who God is. He knows the end from the beginning. And so what the prophetic word says, it says uh, with assurance the things of the future as if they have been done. And so ladies, our faith is meant to do the same. If we know God, like both Christians, then let us today, if we righteously and we truly know God, not that we imagine, but that we read in the stories of the scripture. So let's pick up in verse 19. When Pharaoh's horses with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. 
Then the prophetess Miriam, Arian's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Ladies, do you know that this is the song that will be sung in heaven? So as we end our study today, I find it interesting to know that the first song in the Bible, which is the one we just have studied in Exodus chapter um, 15, is found also in the book of Revelation chapter 15. Um, and the Apostle Paul witnesses in his vision those who have overcome the beast singing the song of Moses. And if you take the time to read it, again, I'll say it's chapter 15 in Revelation, you'll find that the lyrics are different, but the message is the same. So we respond through song, we respond through testimonies, and Revelation tells us that the enemy is overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the testimonies of the saints. There is power in believers telling of what God has done in their lives. And so Psalm 107.2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. And so I want to finish with encouraging ladies to not hold on to your testimony. It is your, but only partially. You belong to God. The testimony of his goodness belongs to him. And it is our privilege. And it is definitely a calling of a believer to do that. So I charge you today to indeed live the life that we have been uh, saying is our slogan throughout this study, that the Exodus story is our story. And be bold in sharing our testimonies. The Lord has done his part. We overcome by his blood. Let's overcome boldly by the word of our testimony. Amen. So this concludes our um, study in the first part of the book of Exodus. And we cannot wait to be back for part two.